Break time. We'll start with bad, then we'll go good. I prefer, always prefer to end with good. So being an intersex person, people don't usually understand what intersex is all about. My art practice has been exploring the intersection of being Aboriginal and queer. Our community, again, respecting our elders enough to fight for it, and that's pretty bestest. Best Day, Worst Day is a podcast where I get to know a bit more about some of the LGBTIQA plus artists and activists I've been really inspired by. I ask them to tell me about a good time they've had and a bad time they've had, and what, if anything, they've learned from those experiences. Their answers have always been fascinating. Just being able to make someone that happy to show that much love, that was that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. This is the first time in a very long time that we won. Who's doing anything in this era? This peer support project is supported by the Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, Vic Health, and a proud part of Brimbank City Council's Work for Victoria Artists in Residency. This project touches on many topics like suicide, loss of loved ones, poor mental health, and experiences of hospitalisation. I don't know whether to call it major breakdown. Maybe that's the worst. <laughs> for a whole year, I was in terrible grief, and I did a lot of advocacy from that grief. Best Day, Worst Day, a podcast made in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to another episode of Best Day, Worst Day. In this episode, I interview Paul Kidd. Paul is an activist and advocate who's been living with HIV for more than 30 years. He's also a lawyer and works at Fitzroy Legal Service. My name's Paul Kidd. I use he and him pronouns. I'm a gay man. I've been living with HIV for a really long time, since the 1980s, and I've been involved in HIV-related organising for a lot of that time. So from coming from an experience, a lived experience of, of having HIV to trying to be part of the solution to HIV and particularly around uh, justice issues for people with HIV and LGBTIQ people more generally. So been involved in HIV for a long time. I have also been involved in a lot of community organisations around LGBTI and HIV spaces and more recently a quite advanced age, I decided to go back and finish a law degree that I had not finished from 20 or 30 years previous. And so now I'm a lawyer and I work in a community legal centre. I work for Fitzroy Legal Service and I'm based at the Neighbourhood Justice Centre, which is a therapeutic court in Collingwood in Victoria. I live out in central Victoria most of the time with my husband, who is a beautiful human being who's recently come out as non-binary. And we live in an amazing rural spot surrounded by trees in an off-grid mud brick house where we try and practice very sustainable and intentional living practices. Grew up in the country. I grew up in a little town in New South Wales called Bega, which most people know as the place the cheese comes from. And a very small town, really hard place to grow up in the 1970s as someone who realised pretty early on that he was different, although maybe I didn't know quite what word to give to that difference. So it was not a great place. Place to grow up, but I had a pretty good family, pretty loving and a bit crazy big family. But uh, yeah, grew up in the country, then moved to Sydney for a long time. I was in Sydney for 20 years and then in Melbourne for a bit and then out in the country in Victoria again. So I come back to my roots a bit in terms of, of living in the country. And I have academic interests and I'm interested in reading and ideas and talking to people about ideas. That's probably my main passion. And I've got a lot of interests 
around that. I love just kind of pottering around my house and looking after the place and doing a bit of gardening, doing a bit of, you know, cutting a firewood. Living off grid requires a, a fair bit of work involved in keeping that the house running. So all of that, probably my weirdest and biggest obsession is the Eurovision Song Contest, on um, which I am a terrible, terrible nerd and a bit of an obsessive. It's hard to go past Conchita Verst in uh, 2015. Amazing performance, an amazing singer, and also somebody who came out as HIV positive not long after that, was forced to come out because, uh, because unfortunately he was blackmailed. But yeah, it's really hard to go past that moment when he won. Interested in a lot of discourse around HIV, obviously. Some of the most interesting people who've written about that, in my opinion, would include people like Eric Rofs, who I knew personally when he was alive. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but he wrote some some really foundational works about about HIV and about its impact on gay communities and gay men in particular. I love the writing of a American queer author called uh, David B. Feinberg, who wrote about his own experience of living with HIV in New York. And unfortunately, he only wrote three books before he died of AIDS. And lots of that kind of, of territory, I guess, is where my interests lie. Look, Sam, the very best day of my life was, of course, the day that I got married to my husband. That was quite a while ago, back in 2004, very early in the history of gay marriage. My beautiful husband and I got married in, in Canada. It's not the day that I want to talk about, though. The day I want to talk about is something that is really close to the long-term passion that I've had about achieving justice for people with HIV. And that's the day that, that Section 19A was repealed in Victoria So Section 19A was a section in the Victorian Crimes Act that had been enacted at the height of AIDS hysteria back in 1993 when it was, there was concern, completely unfounded concern, of course, that people with HIV were going to be going around deliberately infecting other people with the virus. That's something that I think is really historically interesting to look at that, that sense amongst the broader community and amongst the political class at the time uh, that they were were in danger from people with HIV when a lot of the discourse, when you look at what, what's being said, is there's this idea that gay men carry a grudge. So there's this implicit acknowledgement about the mistreatment of gay men and the, and the failure of, of governments and society to treat us well and to appropriately respond to HIV. Now, of course, in fact, there's never been a case in Australia where it's been proven beyond reasonable doubt that somebody deliberately infected another person with HIV. But there's this underlying kind of concern amongst the broader population that that might have been the case. So back in 1993, the the then Kennett government in Victoria enacted this new law to make it a very, very serious criminal offence to intentionally infect someone with a very serious disease. And that was the wording in the Act. And then it defined a very serious disease to mean only one serious disease, and that's HIV. So um, it was already against the law to intentionally cause harm to someone. That has never changed, although the decision was made at the time that there there needed to be a special law that was specific to HIV that specifically criminalised this idea that someone was going to go around and intentionally infect another person with HIV. The law was very strongly contested by the HIV sector and the community at the time. We knew from the very beginning that this was not the right way to respond to HIV, but despite all of those protestations, it was passed back in 1993. And that that law then had been hanging over our heads for more than 
20 years before we were able to get it repealed in 2015. So I come into this story a fair bit further along when I had been involved in the HIV sector here in Victoria for a while. I initially wasn't really aware of HIV criminalisation because there hadn't been very many cases where it had been used, but in the early 2000s, it started to become more and more common for police to prosecute gay men in particular and African straight men in particular for intentional or reckless transmission of HIV or for endangerment of people with HIV. So I come into that process where that's starting to happen more and more. It's something that excited my interest because I've always had this interest in the law and also because it was something that it didn't seem to me that we were doing enough about. So I started to make that my personal crusade in a way, along with some other amazing people across the HIV sector to try and raise awareness about the criminalisation of HIV. So in 2014, Melbourne was the host city for the International AIDS Conference. And about a year before that conference happened, we had an organising discussion about how we were going to take advantage of the eyes of the world being on Melbourne. And we decided this was going to be our first priority was to try and raise awareness of and hopefully get some legislative change in terms of this terrible Section 19A was a problem for us, despite the fact that it had never really been used. Uh, it was sitting there in the criminal law, sending a message about gay men uh, and about people with HIV that was wrong, uh, that said that we were a danger to society, that we were a danger to the public health, and that we needed this special law to control us. We made the argument that that was not necessary, that the, that the general law was adequate for protection of the public, and that the history of, of our community showed really strongly that gay men, when they become HIV positive, when they know that they're HIV positive, generally are very, very responsive. And it's true of all people with HIV. Very, very keen from day one to make sure that don't transmit HIV, that they take whatever steps are possible to ensure that nobody else becomes HIV positive. The thing about HIV in terms of it being something for the criminal law is that everyone who's who has HIV caught it from someone else, became infected through some previous historical incident that affected them. That I think gives people a very unique perspective and that's one of the reasons why I think in the, that the criminalisation of HIV is particularly problematic is because, you know, if HIV transmission is a crime, and I don't think it is, but if it is, then we're all victims first before we're perpetrators and that suggests that there's a need for, for in that area. So we decided to try and push for some action in this area in the lead up to the Melbourne International AIDS Conference in 2014. We started about a year beforehand. We knew that the world's media would be here to report on the conference and we'd have the opportunity hopefully to embarrass the government about the fact that we still had this harmful and, and very stigmatising law on the books despite the fact it had never been needed and it still and it had never been needed even before it was enacted. We tried to get the Victorian government ahead of the conference to consider repealing the law. We contacted the government at the time, which was the Liberal government led by um, Dennis Napthine, and we got a very terse and almost a one-word response from the Attorney General as a, we got a letter back but just basically saying no, under no circumstances, we're not doing that. So we knew that we had a fight on our hands going into the conference and we decided to, to put it 
as front and centre as we could. And we did a lot of work leading up to the conference, briefing media and briefing parliamentarians and others to the point where we felt like we had the lever that we needed to be able to move the mountain that is HIV criminalisation. So just in the few days before the conference, we hosted a meeting of international delegates to talk about HIV criminalisation. We invited the Victorian Health Minister, David Davis, to come and open that meeting for us. And we had Michael Kirby, a very famous and well-respected former High Court judge as our keynote speaker. And I introduced Mr. Davis to come in and and open the meeting. And he came and he, he said he had an announcement to make. So the announcement that was made was that the Victorian Liberal government was going to make the law non-discriminatory. That was a very positive outcome, but it was also a very scary outcome. Because as I said before, the way the law was framed was to say it's against the law to, to intentionally transmit a serious disease, but the only serious disease is HIV. So the risk was that they would just take out the second part of that. So they'd actually broaden the scope of the law and, and include other diseases like perhaps hepatitis C in that, in that law. So we doubled our efforts. We called some press conferences. We released a lot of media. We built a coalition of amazing Victorian civil justice organisations saying that that isn't what should happen. The day before the conference ended, we got a commitment from the Labor opposition that they would repeal the law. So that was the organisation that happened during the conference. Uh, We left the conference with a a commitment from the government to make the law non-discriminatory and a commitment from the opposition to to repeal the law. So we felt like we had the, the basis for a good fight in Parliament about what the right thing to do was, and also you know, a good pre-legislative fight about whether what the government would propose would be adequate. In the event, there was a change of government later that year. So we had a, a Labor government that came in and they made it an election commitment to repeal Section 19A. That wasn't the end of the process for us, though, because although we had a Labor government, they didn't have a majority in the upper house. So we continued that process of pushing for the, the Liberal opposition, as they now were, to, to support that bill. And it came right down to the wire. It came down to the day that the bill was to be debated uh, in the Victorian Parliament. And I was in the Parliament that day and literally sitting in the gallery of the Legislative Council, not knowing what decision had been made within the Liberal Party. And they actually announced it on the floor of the Parliament that the, uh, that the, the opposition would support the bill. So after many years of advocating about HIV criminalisation generally and a year or so of advocating specifically about Section 19A, I was able to sit in the Victorian Parliament and have the Leader of the Opposition in the Upper House announce that, that, that the Opposition would support the bill and then give a speech strongly advocating for it and then come up to me afterwards and shake my hands and you know, congratulate me or the the shadow attorney general actually gave his speech. He came up and he just said, was that okay? And it was just a beautiful moment to be in that situation where we had achieved that outcome and where everyone was on the same page and everyone was giving a positive speech about the importance of this legislative reform and talking about the need to support people with HIV and to have a public health-based response. And, you know, that moment is so so important for me because 
you know, I've been involved in activism in various ways and at various levels for a really long time. And one of the things you learn as an activist is that it's mostly about failing. It's mostly about making the argument and trying to shift the needle and it doesn't work. And you go through long periods of times, you know, maybe years of pushing, pushing on a particular issue and you maybe get nowhere or you maybe make tiny, tiny steps forward, but it's a constant, constant battle. Those moments in activism where whether you get a big result, where you get a sudden change, a shift change in what's gone, going on in the world about your particular issue, they're pretty rare and I haven't had too many of them. So I really treasure that moment of just being able to sit in the parliament and having parliamentarians of all stripes all rising to support this bill that we had fought you know, for two and a half decades to, to get it repealed, to, uh, to hear so many members of parliament supporting people with HIV and acknowledging the work that we had done on this really important issue. And ultimately, that bill passed unanimously, which was an amazing outcome. My mother was not an activist. She was, was just a regular mum. She grew up in the 1930s and she had some pretty outdated ideas about the world. But the thing that she taught me was that you do need to stand up for people. You do need to look out for the injustice that's happening around you. And my mum was, was really strongly involved in advocacy for refugees in the 1970s when the first refugee families were coming from Vietnam. We had our first ever Asian family in my, the town that I grew up. My mum made instantly kind of involved making friends often through the church she was you know uh, involved with the catholic church and they were involved in a lot of that social justice work and obviously that's a two a double-sided coin the catholic church often involved in some very problematic aspects particularly for lgbtiq people but but also i think on the on the grassroots often a real message of social justice and and the importance of challenging those things but in terms of what injustice means to me, the thing that I've learned from HIV is that it's often well-meant. It often comes from a place of trying to do the right thing, but doing the right thing in the wrong way. And that's certainly something we see in the criminal law again and again and again, is politicians often often maybe a little overly concerned with their own re-election and their own appeasing their own political base. But also I think often doing you know what they think is the right thing. I'm sure that many of the people who voted for that Section 19A to be enacted in 1993 felt they were doing what was needed to protect the community. But the harm that flowed from that completely outweighed any good that flowed from it. And there's absolutely no evidence that any good came from that piece of legislation. Instead, we had you know, many years of people being threatened with prosecution, people being charged with very, very serious crimes just in relation to their ordinary sexual lives where something had gone wrong. So I think that taught me a lot about the way the criminal law often works in a perverse way against the, the common good and against, in particular, the well-being and the rights of people who are on the margins. And that, of course, is really strongly reflected in the work that I do today, working with people who have come before the criminal justice system, usually because they've got something gone wrong in their own lives. They might have issues with mental health or drug use, might be homeless or Aboriginal or otherwise on the margins of society. And then inevitably, or perhaps unfortunately, they find themselves involved with the criminal law. So, you know, the law works supposedly to protect us all from harm, but often it can be a force for harm itself. 
So the worst day of my life was the 26th of October, 1994. I was at home at my flat in Bondi in Sydney and about 6.30 in the evening, I got a phone call from a friend of a friend who was calling to tell me that my partner had died that day. Obviously, that was not unexpected. He was living with AIDS and he was really, really ill. He was in Melbourne and I was in Sydney, so I wasn't able to be with him at that time. And it wasn't unexpected that he was going to die, but it was unexpected he was going to die that day. So I wasn't ready. Got a phone call from Brian. He, he just said, Darren just died half an hour ago. And I had to deal with the fact that I wasn't there with him. And I had to deal with the fact that I had lost the love of my life in that moment. He and I had been on again, off again boyfriends for more than nine years. So starting when I was really just a wee baby gay, I was 20 and he was 19 when we met and he was 29 when he died. So 26th of October, 94 was the day he died, but there was obviously a lot of stuff that led up to that terrible moment. We had both been living with HIV for quite a few years by this stage. We were both dealing with failing health, but he unfortunately was really, really struggling. He had really struggled with HIV and had never responded very well to treatment. We'd both started treatment about the same time in the very early 1990s when there was really just one or two drugs available to treat HIV. And they weren't good drugs. They didn't work very well. And they were really, really hard to take. Darren had always struggled with really bad side effects from treatments that had often meant that he had to stop taking the pills and had unfortunately become more and more sick over the years. And in particular, in about the one year before he passed away, he was just really incredibly unwell. The Darren that I remember and the, the man that I fell in love with was this beautiful, tall, dark-eyed, dark-haired, amazing human being, just breathtakingly handsome man. We met on a train of all places, an overnight train, and we struck up a, well, I wouldn't say a friendship, it was definitely on from day one. But he lived in Melbourne and I lived in Sydney and we uh, spent a lot of time moving backwards and forwards between those two cities to see one another. So it was a long distance relationship pretty much the whole time that we were seeing each other. And HIV came into both of our lives very early in that process. I don't think either of us knew when, but we both realised about the same time that we were, we were living with the virus. He had been travelling around the world and living his best life and doing an amazing life for such a, a long time. And then his treatment started not working for him. He went from being, as I said, this beautiful, tall, handsome man to losing a phenomenal amount of weight. He was about six foot one. And when he died, he was about 35 kilos. So he was just, you know, literally skin and bones at the end. As I say, it was not unexpected that he was going to die. He'd been sick for a really long time. And he had fought so hard against the illness that he, that he was living with. In particular, he wanted to come 
to Sydney for sleazeball one last time. Our relationship had always centred around the two big gay parties that happened in Sydney, Mardi Gras and Sleaze. Six months apart every year in Sydney, we would go to both of these parties together and he would come up from Melbourne and spend time in Sydney so that we would, would have those opportunities. And he'd come to Sydney for pretty much every Mardi Gras and every, every sleazeball that he could throughout the whole of our relationship. And coming up to Sleaze in 1994, he was really sick. He'd been in hospital most of the year. He had lost a lot of weight. He couldn't really walk. He had terrible side effects, but he was insistent. He wanted to come to Sydney for one last party. So he, against his medical advice, against his family's wishes, against pretty much every piece of advice that he got, he decided to come and go to Sleazeball. Um, he had an amazing circle of friends in Melbourne and Sydney, and in, in collaboration with those friends, we set up a whole plan to get him to the party. We had like a whole kind of one-hour meeting around a big table to talk about what drugs Darren could safely take because he wanted to take ecstasy and we had some medical people involved in that group and they were pretty clear that if he took ecstasy he would definitely die so we had to talk him out of that concept and he agreed that he'd have a little bit of of acid for that party we managed to facilitate that for him and we facilitated him getting to the party he was in a wheelchair the whole time but he uh, said he had a really great time at that party and uh, stayed a few more days in Sydney and then flew back to Melbourne this was about three weeks before he died so I had been down to Melbourne quite a few times to visit him I had a, uh, a plane ticket that I could use anytime booked and ready to go a couple of days before he died I spoke to him on the phone and asked him how he was going and he said everyone says I'm going to die this week but I don't think I am I think I'm going to be all right and I said well I can just take some time off work I'll come straight down I come down tomorrow and he said no 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 no. come on the weekend it'll be better we'll have a bit of time on the weekend together and he said I promise you I won't die before the weekend and and he didn't make it to the weekend that's such a sad moment for me to reflect on of course the other aspect to that of course is that it was a great relief i had seen so many people die of aids and it's such a hard way to go there's no no gentle good night when you have this horrible disease it destroys you and when he died of course we had been caring for him for so long in so many ways and he was not the person that we knew anymore. He was gone a long time before he died. So you have that sense of relief as well, that sense of him being free from what he had uh, had to carry as by way of a burden. The burden is not just the physical burden to, you know, we're talking about young men who should be in the prime of their life, who were dying from incredibly destructive disease so people who should have been out at the bars and falling in love and having sex and kissing boys and dancing and partying were turned into old men with terrible debilitating conditions and Darren particularly I think found that a great burden he was he, his sense of the injustice of what had happened to him was so 
so profound that it didn't seem fair to him and it wasn't fair that someone who was 29 years old couldn't continue living because of this disease that had come from nowhere into our lives and had such a devastating impact across the whole of our community. So in that moment when I heard that he had passed away, of course, I was destroyed by that news. But it wasn't long after that that I also could grasp onto the reality that he at least was released from that burden. It's really hard to go through that for anyone. You know, if you lose someone that you love from a, a debilitating degenerative disease, that's that's awful. But the thing about it for our community and for me is that it's the disease that's that at that time was destroying us all. So it was not just one person dying. It was the latest in a long series of people that I cared about who had passed away. And it was inevitably something that presaged what I believed at the time to be my inevitable future, that I would inevitably go the same way. And it led me to a realization that I needed to stop putting off a few things. Uh, It led me to the realization that my own life was really limited and that I didn't want to have the same sense of injustice and unfairness when I passed away. That led me, along with so much else that was happening at the time, to wanting to be more involved with the HIV response and to being ultimately an activist. The sense of community that we had back then, it feels wrong to say this, but you know we were stronger back then and we were more united back then, it seemed, because we had this real and present threat. And I always reflect on the first half of the 1990s as being simultaneously the happiest and worst time of my life. And those two things should be not complementary. But the truth is that we lived really good lives at that time because we had to. Pretty much everyone I knew was volunteering for some organisation. They were helping to clean people's apartments. They were shopping for food. They were making red ribbons, they were providing emotional support, they were involved in activism, they were attending meetings, they were going to rallies. You know, that was the community that I lived in then. And it and it's sad to think that it took something as devastating and profound as AIDS to unite us that way, because I don't think we're that united today. And I don't think we were ever that united before. In terms of the way the community came together, we definitely had a huge sense of shared grief around HIV that was very motivating and also really cathartic. The year after Darren died, the annual candlelight vigil was held in Sydney. It was in the Domain in Sydney. And I went along as I had done every year for quite a a few years. And if you've been to the candlelight vigil, either in Sydney or Melbourne, or probably any city around the world now in the last few years, they're pretty tame affairs. They're fairly small. You might get 50 people or something turning up to talk about a grief and loss. That year in the domain, I think there were about two or 3,000 people who came to sit on the grass in the evening, on a cold evening, and listen to the reading of the names. The reading of the names was something that is no longer done and it's no longer done for a good reason. That's because there are too many names uh, to read. 
but this was 1995 and it was still the practice that as part of that candlelight memorial the names of everyone who had died would be read everyone who was nominated by a member of the community as having died and that would take quite a long period of time and so we would go to these candlelight memorials and there'd be some speeches and then they would read out a long 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 list of of names and you'd hear lots of names of people that maybe you hadn't thought about for a while and just have a, a moment of shared grief and loss about those people uh, this particular year, the keynote speaker was Michael Kirby, who in those days was a New South Wales Court of Appeal judge, the president of the Court of Appeal. And the way that the reading of the names used to happen is that, you know, you'd have quite a long list of people who would come in and read like 10 names or 20 names each because no one no one could stand there and read all of the names. And so Michael Kirby gave this great speech. He got to the end and his it was his job to read the first set of names. And I knew that having lost Darren only a few months before, that it was going to be really hard for me when I heard his name read out. But I was, it was, you know, I was ready to kind of steal myself through that process. And I was sitting with a big group of my friends who are also Darren's friends. And Michael Kirby said, and, and now we turn to the reading of the names and the very first name that was read out was Darren. I don't know how that happened, but I completely lost it. Uh, as you can imagine, I was not ready for that. And I don't know if I can even convey what those events were like because you there are thousands of people there and it's and people are just openly distraught and and just a sense of shared grief and shared loss was so important to us as a community then and that particular night yeah when he said you know he, i'm going to now read some names and i thought well just start getting ready paul and then i wasn't ready <laughs> i always found it cathartic even the previous years and subsequent years to that it is a weird memory to have of like sitting under the stars in the evening with thousands of people of whom most of them were just heartbroken. It is something I don't particularly want to experience again because I don't want to have to go through the heartbreak. Um, but the, that sense of collective grief and loss is something we don't have anymore, which is good. There are lots of us in the community who have lost people and people do still die from HIV, of course, around the world. You know, many hundreds of thousands of people die every year. The reality in Australia is that deaths from HIV in the gay community are pretty much unheard of now, whereas they used to be literally wall to wall. You couldn't, you couldn't escape it. And, you know, everyone, I mean, everyone I knew had lost someone. So it was cathartic and it was incredibly important the flip side of that is that you know that was one night a year when we got together to grieve and we also had several nights a year when we got together to celebrate and i said before that those early you know the first half of the 1990s simultaneously the saddest and happiest time of my life because we had amazing parties the mardi gras party the sleazeball party and all the other community parties in sydney that were just kind of like my whole year was structured around going to these these dance parties because they were amazing. There are dance parties now and the dance parties now are also amazing in their own way. But in particular, you had this real sense that we had something to celebrate because we were surviving and we were getting through this incredible 
challenge together. So I really, I was obviously also in my early 30s back then. So also pretty good time of your life to be going out and partying a lot, but also just a real moment in history that was so extraordinary and unprecedented and that I have so many happy memories of that time as well as sad ones. Thank you so much to Paul Kidd for being so generous in sharing his deeply personal life story. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Best Day, Worst Day, and we'll be back next time.